encourage you to take out your Bible, opening to the book of Revelation, chapter 1 this morning, as we return this morning to our sermon series through the book of Revelation. And as you're turning there, just a, a note, uh, I guess housekeeping note, when I began this sermon series, I distributed these little uh, sermon cards that uh, kind of held up the sk- preaching schedule uh, between the start of this series until Easter. And I uh, had laid out kind of strategically, here's how we will proceed through these verses. And here we are now in, I believe, the fifth sermon in our series, and we're in verses five and six. We have not made the progress that I had anticipated making, so you can now officially destroy those sermon cards, and you can bank on it. If you enjoyed them, you will never see them again. It was a complete complete waste of my time, and uh, I had good intentions, but um, you know, as you're studying, uh, you, you do kind of a broad study, and you think, okay, here's how it's going to break down, and here's how I'll handle it. And then as the weeks, you're getting into the text, and you realize, nope, there's too much going on here. So uh, we have spent five weeks on introductory material, and that's by design. It really is. Uh, So much of the book of Revelation, again, you've got these extremes where you have some who are just fanatics about it and only read the book of Revelation. Then you have others who are just scared to death of it. Um, and, and neither one of those, we're wanting to avoid those. And so what we're trying to do as we come to it, uh, we, we realize there's a lot of weighty matters in the book of Revelation, but uh, we're, we're letting John, the author of the book, kind of guide us through. There's a lot in the introduction where he says, this is given to me by God, uh, to Christ, to the angels, to me, to the churches. Um, that, that signifies there's, there's something majestic here. And uh, we're letting John kind of, dictate how he wants this book or how he intends for this book to be interpreted. And so we've taken our time through the introduction. We spent uh, a couple of weeks on the prologue, verses 1 through 3, and and now we're into the salutation, which runs from verses 4 through 8 and uh, into verse 9 a little bit. So let's look together at the the passage this morning. And I'll begin reading uh, at verse 1, though our focus this morning will be Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We'll stop there. Last Lord's Day, we began looking at this salutation. And a salutation in in the epistles is just like in in our day. It's it's an opening to the letter. Again, we've said that the the book of Revelation is an apocalyptic epistle. It's a letter. Now, it's a little bit different from other New Testament letters. It's apocalyptic, but nonetheless, it it takes the form of a letter. And while in most modern letters, we're we're accustomed to seeing a salutation, right? You receive a letter in the the mail, or I guess these days, more like an email, dear so-and-so, or to whom it may concern. You know, when we write a letter or pen that, usually we don't put much thought into it, right? We just kind of, it's just a pleasantry. It's just how you begin the letter, dear so-and-so. That's not the case here. The argument I tried to make last week is John's salutation, what we see here beginning in verse 4, is a gate, a gateway that, that, that John is leading us through in order to prepare us for the message that is to come through the book of Revelation. And we saw right at the outset that John's burden is to set a tone of victory to his audience, to his readers, to you and I. So we read in verse 4, the beginning of this salutation, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace 
from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. And, and what, what John is doing here is he's writing to a, a, a body of Christians who are suffering. They're being persecuted for the faith. We've, we've gone through the whole background of what's going on in these things. What he's doing is, is that so that when his audience is, is under attack, when they're facing persecution, when they're discouraged and tempted to compromise their devotion to Jesus Christ just because of all they've got going on, he wants them to be reminded of the greatness of God. He wants them in those circumstances, in that moment, to be reminded of God's greatness and to be reminded of what we see here in verse 4 and 5, that God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son, Jesus Christ, they have covenanted together from eternity past to say to one another, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit, let us bring all of the resources that we have at our disposal. God, God, and God. Let us bring it all to bear on every single one of our children and every one of their situations so that they know victory to our everlasting glory. That's what we see here in verses 4 and 5 when, when John writes grace to you and peace. Peace by grace from God the Father. He who was and is and is to come, and from the Holy Spirit, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Wait, are you saying there's seven Holy Spirits? No, seven as we have seen and talked about in previous weeks is symbolic of perfection, of completeness. He's talking about the, the perfections of the Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Holy Spirit there coming to bear. And from number three, Christ Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. In our, in our difficulties, in our struggles, he wants us to see the triune God in all of his fullness, bringing all of their resources to bear by grace in our lives, and us living moment by moment upon who he is in his triune greatness. And we closed last week talking about what that might look like. Because the promise of the book of Revelation is, we saw in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads this book out aloud, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it. So it does us no good to, to hear a sermon last Sunday and then walk out of here and not apply it. Now, I don't expect you to remember all my sermons, and I'll be honest, I don't remember all my sermons. But the fact of the matter is, there are certain things in these messages, certain things about God and who he is and that, that we must remember and that we must apply. And we talked last week about the need for Christians to live upon the fullness of God's gracious supply in his triune existence. We talked about what that looks like and how, how it, it might be as in our daily time of prayer, we seek the Father, we come to him, oh, our timeless Father, the one who is and was and is to come, we come to you this day. And, and just put it in the context of where we were in our prayer, morning this, uh, prayer meeting this morning. In, in Psalm 106, Father, you were, you've recorded for us how you... You took the Red Sea and you rebuked it and it became dry land so that your people could come across. And then after they were safely across, you brought those waters to bear upon the Egyptians who were following them. Father, that was omnipotent power. That was your judgment. And Father, you who was and is and is to come, you are unalterable in your perfections. The God who did that is the God over my life today and the God of my circumstances today. And I'm here now seeking you, asking you, Father, help me to understand as this day unfolds all that you have planned for me. And he's triune. That's what John here says. And Holy Spirit, because you are sevenfold in your perfections and you stand at the throne of Almighty God, Spirit, I pray to you that you would bring all of the resources to, at your disposal to bear upon my life, upon my situation, so that I may walk faithfully to Jesus Christ when that phone call comes in. And it, it absolutely floors me, and, and I'm not prepared for it, and my life is in shambles. That in that moment, I won't compromise my, the Lordship of Christ. Lord, Spirit, bring to bear everything so that my life won't be dictated by my circumstances or responding to those circumstances, but it will be dictated by you. And oh, Jesus Christ, you who are the faithful witness, you who are the risen one, you who are ruling over all things.
open my eyes to see. Even when I turn on the news and I see abhorrent things that in some way that even here in this life I won't fully understand, you are ruling over all things. Isn't that what John tells us? And that is living upon the, the fullness of God in our hardships, in our afflictions, in our persecution, in our trials, in our difficulties. Do you see how John is setting a tone of victory, even to an audience that he's writing to who's enduring first century persecution under the reign of Emperor Domitian? And oh, by the way, he's writing to you and I as well. There's no situation in your life or in mine that this triune God is not adequate. There's no situation, no time for which he's not adequate. There's no need for which he does not have the resources for us. And it's here in the salutation that John is setting a tone. Grace to you and peace. Again, we said it last week. It's peace by grace. Peace in the midst of your persecution, your affliction, your hardships, all that you're going through. And that peace comes by focusing upon the greatness of your triune God. You see, he's setting a But those are just the opening words, the opening lines of this salutation. And I think what's interesting is we, we, we briefly noted it last week. When John lays out the Trinity, the triune existence of God's person, there in verse 4, he rearranges the order from what we're accustomed to seeing in the Bible or even in our common dialogue. We're, we're accustomed to talking of the Trinity as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And it's not an accident that John orders them Father, Spirit, Son. And the question is why, and I think it becomes clear when we get into verses 5 and 6. It's because ultimately he fully intends to expand upon the person of Jesus Christ. He fully intends to, to take Christ and to uphold him and to show us the glory and the radiance and the excellencies of Christ. He wants to expand upon that in a way that he's not going to do the, the Father and the Spirit. And so rather than putting Christ and expanding and then making the Holy Spirit as kind of an add-on afterwards, an afterthought, he rearranges the order. And again, I think that too is a gateway into the message of the book of Revelation. Because what we've said from the very outset is that the book of Revelation is predominantly about Jesus Christ. It is not predominantly about charts and graphs and figuring out the future. There's some of that there. But we have completely made the book of Revelation something that if John himself were sitting in most contemporary messages on, on his own book, he wouldn't even recognize them. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypsis, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ in his victory over all things. And just as the book of Revelation is predominantly about Jesus and his exaltation as the sovereign king victorious over the universe, so too when it comes to the salutation, John focuses us upon the Lord Jesus Christ, because at every turn in the book of Revelation, in every vision, in every, everything that comes to pass, he wants Christ to be exalted. So this morning we come to verses 5 and 6, and a very Christ-centered doxology on the heels of where we left off in verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, he immediately, immediately breaks out into doxology, into worship, into praise. It's, it's, it's unexpected. It's not something that you anticipate. He, he, just, he just can't hold back. And immediately after reveling in Christ's threefold work there, he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, what's the significance? If this salutation is not just a, a, a greeting into the letter, there's purpose behind it all, what is significant about this doxology? 
What difference does this kind of Christ-centered doxology make to the life of the churches who are receiving this? As they're going through all their hardships and persecutions and afflictions, they're watching loved ones die. They've lost their freedom. There's no hope for the future. Similar situation that we face today. Discouragement. All kinds of hardships and afflictions. Not putting them on equal footing. But we have our own tribulations in our day today. What makes this doxology such an important part of this book? And it's this. Worship is very much a part of our warfare. It's often overlooked. But worship is an important part of our warfare. And I think that's something we need to see here at the outset of our study, the book of Revelation. Several weeks ago, in fact, the very first message that I preached on the book of Revelation, what did we do? We just simply... We sat down together and we read the entirety of the book from start to finish. We started in chapter 1, verse 1, and we read to the end of the book. That was exactly how it was written, exactly as it was intended. And we just sat down and read it in its entirety. And one of the things we did as we were, we were reading is we noticed how often as a vision is unfolding or, or something is unfolding, there's just a spontaneous break into worship. It, it, it comes at sometimes the most unexpected times. Sometimes it's part of the vision, and other times it's just in response to the vision. Just at various times, it just the author, John, breaks down into worship. And we might begin to wonder, well, what purpose does that serve? If he's writing to these churches with their afflictions, with their struggles, that may seem a little self-serving. What, how does that serve these churches? Well, it's an important part of our warfare. Worship is an important part. You see, part of what renews us with fresh perseverance for the battle is the very act of declaring the victories of King Jesus. Part of what renews us day by day, part of what refreshes us, even in the most overwhelming circumstances where we're battered, where we're beaten, where we're even questioning, where is God in all this? Right? I've been there. One of the things that renews us and refocuses us is the very act of going back and declaring, remembering and declaring the victorious accomplishments of King Jesus, of just worshiping him. If you think about it, is it an accident that the greatest musician, songwriter, worship leader in the Old Testament is also acknowledged as the Bible's greatest warrior, King David? You watch how warfare takes place in the Old Testament, and who is it who often leads the way in battle? It's the musicians. Why? Because worship is an important part of our warfare. Have you ever acknowledged that? Have you ever noticed that in your own life? Have you known it to be true? You see, when we really worship, when we give ourselves to a focused declaration of who Christ is and upon the excellencies of Christ, it strengthens our resolve. It, it, it ignites our passions. Our hearts and minds and spirits are elevated. When our worship is preoccupied with God, when it's devoted to God and who He is in Christ and His Spirit, when our minds really engage above and beyond our circumstances and just really are captivated by who God is and His triune excellencies, in that moment, is it not your experience, at least for a moment, Temptations lose their allure. They're not gone for good. They will be back the moment I set my mind back on the things of this world. But for a moment anyway, those temptations lose their allure. And that moment of worship compromise seems unimaginable. What previously I was so close, I was teetering to compromise my faith, to compromise looking unto Jesus and his lordship in this area. But in this moment of worship, what was as I'm, as I'm singing and, and focusing upon Him. It's in those moments we are reminded of the practical ways that we are devoted to our King. So, what are the praiseworthy accomplishments of Jesus Christ that John has in mind? He's, that He's breaking out into praise and worship. What are the accomplishments that we should be focusing upon in our worship if worship is so integral? 
to our warfare? Well, he mentions three things here. And to be more precise, the second and the third thing he mentions are the results of the first thing, the consequences of the first. So I want to draw your attention first. What are the praiseworthy things that we, need, that we should focus on, even in our circumstances, even in the hardships that we face? And the first is this. Notice right off the bat there in verse 5 in the doxology. To him who loved us. Stop there. To him who loves us. I want to draw your attention to the tense of the verb there. To him who loved us. It's a present tense. Now, in Greek, tense works different than in English. In English, we're used to tense focuses upon the time of action. Past, present, future. Past action, present action, future action. In Greek... Tense focuses on kind of action. There is an element of time, but it focuses primarily on a kind of action. And in Greek, the present tense means a durative action, an ongoing action, an action that is, is continuous. So when we read about Christ in this doxology, to him who loves us, it is accurately also translated to him who is loving us, presently loving us. And that's important. When you think about who John is writing to and all that they've got going on in their lives, the hardships, the persecutions, one thing is absolutely clear that John is trying to communicate to them. That the one who, verse 5, is the ruler of all the kings on the earth, those very kings who are persecuting you, those very kings who it looks like they're winning the day, those very kings who look like, my goodness, the seed of the serpent is destroying the seed of the woman, right? Genesis 3. Oh, make no mistake about it. He is king over the kings of the earth. And he loves his people with a permanent, an abiding love. Right now, Jesus Christ loves his people. This morning, Jesus Christ loves us. Assuming we're Christian. That's not a blanket statement for all people in all places at all times. For those who've repented of their sins and professed faith in Jesus, Jesus loves us now. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of these churches to whom he's writing, all that they're going through, circumstantially in their lives, things are a mess, right? Circumstantially in their lives, Christians, their friends have been killed because of their testimony to Jesus Christ. The threat of imprisonment looms large on the horizon for each and every Christian in the first century. For them, the Romans hate them, the Jews hate them. What in the world do you mean? Jesus presently loves us with all that we've got going on. It makes sense that that would be a question in their mind, wouldn't it? Because it's a question in our mind. Is that not so often the inclination of our hearts? So often, isn't that the posture we take? That our criteria for believing Christ's love for us on any given moment is tied to our circumstances. It's a temptation. That the circumstances we find ourselves in dictate whether we feel loved by Christ. So, when our body fails or when our health fails or when we get sick and we go through prolonged illnesses or when our finances get tight or when job opportunities dry up or when our, our children become wayward or when our spouse becomes unfaithful, immediately we ask, where were you? I don't feel loved by Jesus in that moment, right? So what's the alternative? Are you, ask, are you saying, Jake, that, that, that if we don't discern the love of Christ based upon our circumstances, well, then what do we define it on? Is it just some blanket, invisible force out there that you just want me to walk around believing just because? John tells us Jesus loves you with a present, abiding, continuous love. Do you just mean just kind of cling to it and hold on to it and just, well, the Bible says it, so I believe it? Well, well, that would be sufficient. I don't want to undermine that. But my answer to that is no. What I'm suggesting is that the New Testament steadily sets forth 
one event as the definitive, all-encompassing expression of the love of Jesus Christ for his people. And that's the cross. There is always something to cling to, to know the reality of Christ's present abiding love for you and for me as Christians, no matter what the circumstance. Now let me address, before we go much further, a grave difficulty in contemporary Christian thinking when it comes to the love of God or the love of Christ for his people. When we talk about Jesus' love, we, we just came off of Valentine's Day and uh, a, a day where we, we, we get pretty sappy and sentimental, right? I mean, or at least we remember days we have been. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about Christ's love for you and I. We're not talking about a, a sappy sentimentality. We're not talking about Christ pining over us saying, oh, you're, you're so beautiful, you're so lovable. I just, I just couldn't make it without you. I just have to have you. I, I feel so warm and fun. That is not what we're talking about. But so often that's the thinking. When we talk about Christ's present love for you right now, we get that in mind. That's not the picture of the love of God and the love of Christ. So how does Christ love us? Well, Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he love the church? Well, he goes on to say, he gave himself for us. In John chapter 15, we have statements of Christ's love, and it's tied to commandments. Christ's love, he kept the commandments. Few things are more just unappealing than trying to combine love and keeping commandments, right? I mean, we want love to be not tied to, I have to do something. It's just a free expression. Just, But in John's gospel, love and commandments go together. Because biblical love is not this starry-eyed, sentimental, romantic kind of thing that we've made it out to be today. No. Greater love hath no man than this. Then he laid down his life for his friend, for another. And that's what John is pointing us to when he says, to him who loves us. Not some sappy, sentimental, warm, gushy thing. He's saying the one who loves you presently and you in your situation may be struggling to believe it. He has proven it beyond all question. How? By laying down his life for you. That's right off the bat. The first thing he wants us to see, and, and what is it we should focus upon if worship is central to our warfare? We must be absolutely convinced of Christ's love for us by grace. Objectively known, not based upon our circumstances, objectively known at the cross where he laid down his life for us. Now that's the first of three things. I told you the second and third thing flow from the first. So secondly, I want us to also notice not only Christ's love for us, present tense, a present abiding, ongoing love, but secondly, also notice right here in verse 5, to him who loves us, notice a change in tense. I know I'm down in the weeds this morning. They're not always like this, but here it matters. To him who presently loves us and has freed us, past tense. He changes tense. From our sins by his blood and made us, past tense, a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. He changes tense. Those type things are inspired by God. They're not an accident. We might go back to what we saw in verse 4, the sevenfold fullness, the perfections of the Holy Spirit. 
who inspired every word of this, who inspired even the tense of the words of these things. In the fullness of the Holy Spirit's inspirational work over the book of Revelation, the tense here is significant. John is saying that the present tense love of Christ for you is proven by a past event. Something that's happened in the past. And what was that act? He has freed us from our sins by his blood. Freed us. A past event. At the cross, he's freed us. And he uses the metaphorical expression by his blood. And don't be thrown when I say metaphorical there. I'm not suggesting that Jesus didn't literally uh, pour out his blood upon the cross. He did. But here, by his blood is used metaphorically to describe the cross. To describe the work of the cross. And think about the language here. The images. He has freed us from our sins. Released us. Delivered us from our bondage. Did I strike up any... Old Testament images. Remember, one of the things about the book of Revelation, and I think one of the reasons we have a lot of difficulty interpreting it is because it alludes to the Old Testament more so than any other book in the New Testament, and it's not even close. Constantly there are allusions that if we don't know those, then when we come upon the New Testament, use of it, we're just left to, well, what could it mean? Let me think. Where in the Old Testament do we see this language of being freed or released or delivered from bondage by blood? That certainly is reminiscent of the Passover, isn't it? It's reminiscent of the sacrificial lamb at the Passover, that defining event of deliverance in the Old Testament when God freed his people from their Egyptian bondage through the shedding of blood, the shedding of blood of a sacrificial lamb then followed by the exodus through the Red Sea into the wilderness where God brought his people to himself. What does that anticipate? When we read about that in the Old Testament in Exodus, what does it anticipate? It anticipates a far more significant rescue. The freeing of people, not from their bondage to a people, the freeing of a people from their bondage to sin. Their bondage to sin and, and the guilt of sin at the cost of, of the blood of a lamb, Jesus Christ. And here, John is saying, oh church, covenant life church, I know your struggles, I know your hurts, I know your pains, I know what you're dealing with. Nobody else may know. We do a good job of hiding it, you know, generally speaking. I know all that's going on. I want you to know Christ loves you right now. And you can know that because look at what he's done for you in the past. The forgiveness of your sins, delivering you from your sins and your guilt by the blood of Jesus Christ. I've told you the book of Revelation is the most practical book in the entirety of the New Testament. For most of us, that's kind of a stretch because of what we think the book of Revelation is about. So let me try to drive this home as practically as I can. When you day in and day out, today, this afternoon, tomorrow, whatever the situation may be, when you are struggling to believe that Christ is loving you right now with a present, abiding, ongoing love, you run your bottom right back to the cross because that's where it's undeniable. That's where it can never be questioned. It can never be doubted. It's at the cross as Christ is pouring out his blood for you and I for the forgiveness of our sins and for the reconciliation of our relationship with God. You go back in those moments of weakness and you meditate upon those passages that focus upon the cross. Contemplate the significance of the cross. Throughout church history, the Christians that are most healthy in understanding and applying Christ's love for them in the most difficult of times have always been those who are preoccupied with the cross. Example one, Paul in the book of Galatians. 
with all the hardships that he's going through, the struggles, his relationships there with the Jews in Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. He's meditating upon the cross. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Man, Paul, with all you got going on there in Galatia and all the struggles and the strife and the hardship and, and even those on your team you're struggling to get along with and here, man, you are convinced of Christ's love. Oh, he didn't finish. And now the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see what he's done there? The love of Christ is not just some ooey-gooey, oh, he loves me. I just know he does. I'm so lovable, I'm the Apostle Paul. No. He's preoccupied, meditating upon the cross. He gave himself for me. Therefore, in spite of my circumstances, I know Christ's present, ongoing love for me. Or in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he defines that love. Not some ooey-gooey, husbands, love your wives with this, oh, honey, I love you love you so much. You're just warm and fuzzy. Do that, right? Right? But it's more than that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the biblical understanding there. You see, the cross is the criteria by which we measure the love of Christ, not our circumstances. But that's if you're like me anyway, uh, you, you may be an elevated to a, a greater spirituality than I have, and that's not hard to do. But if you're like me, so much of my thinking on Christ's love for me is based on interpreting the circumstances in my life. When things are smooth, I must be doing well. Christ loves me. And when things are difficult, I must have really messed up. I don't feel like Christ loves me. And there's always a place for me to examine my heart and to see, have I contributed to the hardship? Is there a sin that I need to repent of? But the point here is, the cross is the criteria by which we measure the love of Christ for us. And so, blessed is the one who reads and hears and who keeps what is written so what would this look like to apply this to our lives? I think it would begin with, we as Christians ought never to say, and these came to me kind of quickly this week because these are the things I tend to say, but we ought never to say in light of this, poor me. God, why me? Why is it always me? Why does it seem like everybody's always against me? Or circumstances are always against me. Now, I've never said this one, but I have no friends who do. Why did I get married to such and such a person? Why did I have to marry someone like this? Why are my children the way that they are? How come no one seems to appreciate me? all that I'm going through right now, how come no one is regarding me right now? Why does it seem like nobody's thinking about me or paying attention to me or acknowledging me? Rather, the Christian says, in spite of all this, Jesus loves me as defined by the event of the cross. And there at the cross, I was freed from condemnation. There at the cross, I was freed from sin and guilt. He loves me now. So then, Revelation 1, 5, what is the ruler of the kings on the earth seeking to accomplish for his glory and my good in this situation? Where I'm tempted to wallow in self-pity, but instead, My eyes upon Christ. I do not compromise. Or what are you trying to accomplish through this painful and different, difficult circumstance? Might I submit to you that's how you get through a tough marriage? Daily 
applying that. That's how you get through a season of time where your business is teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. That's where you, you put perspective to your suffering and to your illnesses and to uh, our struggles and to whatever the case may be. That is allowing the cross of Christ to be the event that defines everything else in your life. Do you see what he does there? A present tense to him who loved us, his church, his people. And past tense has evidence that, convinced us objectively through a past, freeing us from our sins by his blood at the cross, which brings us to the third thing. And has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Now here, he says that the present tense love of Jesus Christ, where he did something for us in the past, now is intended not just to do something for us, it's intended to do something to us. And made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. One of the things we are prone to forget, I said we, one of the things we are prone to forget is that the God who saves us by grace saves us for a purpose. We've not been redeemed so that when we die, we will go to heaven, but until then, we can live however we want to. Sometimes, I would submit unintentionally, that's kind of how we reframe God's work of salvation. I've been saved by grace. I'm forgiven. He knows I'm imperfect. I'll do the best I can. And then when I die, I'll go to heaven. There's a whole slew of New Testament that says, you better think real clearly about what you're saying there. But the point here is, most of us tend to forget that we've been redeemed by a redeemer, not so that we can then live however we want to live until we go to heaven, but rather so that all of my being might be turned to the redeemer. I've been, would be turned to Jesus Christ. And we can go back to God's deliverance of, of Egypt in the book of Exodus as a biblical motif of this, of God's delivering us from sin and bondage to sin. In Exodus chapter 5, we won't turn there, but you can write it down and look at it this afternoon. In Exodus chapter 5, verse 1, by way of instruction from God at the burning bush, Moses and Aaron walk into Pharaoh's office and they say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Deliverance that there's a purpose they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness thus says the lord let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness not let my people go because they deserve freedom they deserve autonomy slavery is a bad thing it is but that's not the point here the point is rather let my people go so that they will no longer be under your dominion but now they will be under the dominion of God. They will go to the wilderness and make a feast to God. Do you see the difference? They're being delivered for a purpose. They're being delivered for the purpose of worshiping God. And the same is true for you and I. We've been redeemed not so that we would live however we want to live, but we've been redeemed through the economy of redemption, going back to last week's message, right? The, 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 uh, the Father being the architect of salvation, the Spirit being the applier of salvation, the uh, Christ himself being the accomplisher of our salvation, the fullness of the triune God bringing us to salvation, not so that we just do whatever we want to do and then go to heaven when we die, but so that we would be turned to that God to worship and to make much of him. After those... Israelites were delivered from the Egyptians. Three months later, they arrive at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. Moses climbs to the top of the mountain where God meets with him and says to him, As you know, Moses, I've delivered you by grace. I came in uh, as on eagle's wings, and I swooped in, and I took you all out of there all to my glory, my grace. I did this. I brought you I didn't bring you out of there and set you on your way and say, there you go, did that for y'all, you're free. Strategically, I brought you to myself. 
tell Moses, if you will keep covenant, then out of all the nations of the world, I will make you my treasured possession, and although the whole earth is mine, I will make you a kingdom of priests. That's Exodus 19. You see, the ultimate aim of the Passover, of the deliverance of the uh, Israelites by blood was not just deliverance itself. It was that God might bring this nation to himself, would conform them into his likeness, that they would rule and reign as his ambassadors over the ends of the earth, as a kingdom of priests, his priests, devoted to him, loving him, serving him, making the revelation of his glory and greatness known to the ends of the earth. This was the purpose of Israel's deliverance by the shedding of blood, that they might be made a kingdom of priests. Is that not what John has in mind right here? When he says, and he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. You see, what he's saying there is something that we know. We've read the Old Testament. We know the story. What was prophesied as Israel's role in Exodus never got fulfilled. Not by Israel, anyway. They couldn't keep covenant. They couldn't do the things over and over. Yes, all that the Lord has said we will do. All that the Lord has said we will do. All, right? Just that downward spiral. Ultimately, it's Christ who comes and fulfills what Israel couldn't do. And it's Christ in us, in our union to Christ, where now God is bringing us and making us into what He always intended His people to be. And John is taking Exodus 19 and applying it to the fullness of the church, even in their day of, of difficulty and affliction and persecution and hardship and all that they're going through. He's saying, oh, church of Jesus Christ, Christ loves you in spite of your circumstances with a present abiding love. He loves you now. And you can know this by looking back at what He's done for you, saving you by His blood, by the shedding of blood, the forgiveness of your sins. He's redeemed you and brought you to Himself by grace. And what is He doing in you even now? Making you a kingdom of priests, making you into His likeness, conforming you to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, fulfilling all that He intended to do in you. The significance of that is immense. These first century Christians he's writing to were on the brink of their own death, their own persecution, their own hardships, their own afflictions. And John is writing to them here, the gateway into the book of Revelation, here in the salutation. Yeah, I know Rome is big. Yeah, I know Rome is powerful. Yes, I know Rome is impressive. Yes, I know Domitian is a beast. And there's more coming. But know who you are. You have been made into an eternal kingdom. The very priesthood of Jesus Christ. According to Daniel chapter 7, a kingdom of the saints of the Most High that will endure forever. And what John is doing is upholding a tone of triumph in the midst of all the heartache, the persecution, the troubles, the trials and tribulations, says, in light of it all, cling to your triune God and rejoice in all that He is doing in you and through you, through His Son, Jesus Christ. And know that triumph is yours. And that's why John writes, after all of this, to Him, to Christ, be glory and dominion forever and ever. You know, Covenant Life Church Revelation is so practical to you and I. Forgive me for what I'm about to do. Pull out my phone. I'm doing it purposefully. It's so practical to you and I because 
Revelation was written just as much to us as it is to these seven churches. And we've talked about why in, previous, in our previous messages. We live in a Genesis 3 world. We are living in the, that time of period between that we're no longer what we once were, but we're not yet what we will be. We're living in that period of time where it was told about in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, where as the curses are being laid out upon the, uh, the, the man and the woman and upon the serpent, that God foretells that for the next little while, it's been going on for quite a while now, there's hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And there will be a season where it looks like the seed of the serpent is defeating the seed of the woman. All right, we, We've been through all of this. The seed of the woman is Christ. It will look like the kingdom of Satan is defeating the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Revelation comes in and fills the void because we're not there yet. But John, inspired by God, says, don't give up hope yet. It feels like the seed of the serpent is winning. It feels like your king is incapable. It feels like he's lost control. It feels like, man, maybe he doesn't even love you right now because of all that you're going through and the way it just keeps piling on. This is a Genesis 3 world. This is a world where sin is still running rampant. Where the enemy, even though he's a defeated foe as a result of the resurrection, he's not yet met his final demise. But here's where revelation comes in. The unveiling of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's how it ends. The triumph of the Lamb. Jesus wins, and his love for you is real. It is secure. It's rooted in the so a song like worship is a major part of our warfare. You may be looking for, I need some good songs. And I'll be glad to point you to some, but here's one that is often forgotten. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, and the Bible tells me, meditate upon the cross. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gates to open wide. He will wash away my sin, let his little chill child come in. Jesus loves me, he will stay close beside me all the way. Thou hast bled and died for me, I will henceforth live for thee. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible, the cross, tells me so.